1: This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support.
0: You're listening to the Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast. This is episode 54, which is more or less a continuation of episode 53, where we covered Owen Flanagan's book, The Bodhisattva's Brain, Buddhism Naturalized. That was uh, more or less an interview with him, and we are now going to spend some time discussing the meat of the book and continuing on some earlier threads that we followed up on Buddhism in earlier podcasts.
1: And your name is? Seth Paskin. Austin, Texas. With Mark Linton Meyer in Madison, Wisconsin.
2: This is Wes Allen in Boston,
3: Massachusetts.
1: And
0: this
3: is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin.
0: Dylan, is Middleton in the middle of Wisconsin?
3: Yes, just like Madison. It is adjacent to Madison.
0: But Madison is not called Middleton.
3: No, it's not. What's strange in the way like, alliteration is strange is that I grew up in my junior high and high school years in Midland, Michigan. And now I'm living in Middleton, Wisconsin, and my kids are going to MHS High School, which is what I did as well. Their mascot's the Cardinals, and my mascot was the Chemic. (laughs) The what? The Midland High School Chemics. Midland is the home of Dow Chemical, and Midland High, the first high school, was the Midland High Chemics, and our symbol was an atom.
0: Was there like a raging debate where they said, we should call ourselves the Chemists, and somebody said, no, no, no. It should be like chemic, because chemic is somehow more aggressive and sports-like <laughs> than chemist.
1: I don't know. Is it the fighting chemics? Is it the no. angry? Is there an adjective?
3: Nope.
0: Nope. It's the precipitating chemics.
3: <laughs> titrating.
0: <laughs> the titrating We
3: come closer and closer to
1: winning every year. <laughs> So I thought we haven't read in a while our ground rules, and maybe we should read them and reflect on how uh, when we had a big time guest, we failed in enforcing them. (laughs) Number one, try not to assume that our audience has read what we're talking about or has any other background in philosophy. (laughs) Yes, I hope that folks were not too put off by the fact that we sort of launched straight into advanced territory. I do think that he was very good about explaining what he meant, so that if we talked about Mysterians, say, in the philosophy of mind, he would go ahead and define that.
3: Yeah, I think you can, if you just sort of edit out as you're listening to the names and just sort of footnote them in your mind, it'll work just fine. He pretty much explained it and then included the footnotes. So if you were ambitious, you would write down the names and then go look up the books by them. But I think... If you just sort of bracketed that out, it wouldn't uh, lose too much. He didn't invoke the names so as to invoke their whole teachings or something by their names. He sort of more just told you who they were and gave due props, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I did that a little. But those were mostly, hopefully, references to past episodes that people can go check out. And also G.E. Moore, who we'll have a future episode on. And you just need to look What was your
0: G.E. Moore fetish on that thing? He picked up on that. He was like, I don't know what
3: you're... (laughs) Is that the G.E. Moore I read? I'm not so sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: It kind of came out of the left field for me. I didn't realize that you had prepped by going through the G.E. Moore canon prior to that. I, I didn't. He's, the point is he's he's
1: arguing for naturalism and G.E. Moore is famous as a guy that argued against any naturalist theory of ethics. Yeah, Ethical truths are something that we sort of know intuitively and they can't be defined in terms of anything else. You can't say – The good is pleasure for the most people because you could always sensibly ask the question, but is pleasure for the most people actually good? And the fact that you can ask that question means that the good is something distinct. Anyway, that's all you need to know to understand what I was asking. Just that it was some form of intuitionism that is putting values on a different plane somehow from the things of science and of course, many, many, many philosophers ran with that. I was then projecting that forward that even the phenomenologists who just say, look, I just experience values, that they're just giving a slightly more modern version of that same intuition. But this brings us to our second ground rule, which is don't name drop, just make your point. Don't say, you would understand me if only you'd read Foucault's posthumous work, Nutter Butter, a
0: politico technocratic analytic. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something like, no name-dropping. For example, you don't want to say, three people who are currently working in the field who are doing great work on this are Fred James, <laughs> James Fred, and Frederick Jameson. Ah. <laughs> we could see what he was doing, like you
1: said, as footnotes rather than as something to take the place of expressing the actual idea.
0: Yeah, he never invoked anybody as an authority, which is the worst. If we have a spirit of this rule, it is... Not so much to invoke ideas that are not clarified as much as it's not to invoke somebody as an authority to stop a conversation.
2: The other part of it, I think, should be if you begin a lengthy talk about some secondary source you've read that the other guys haven't read, that can be a problem because there's no way for us to have a conversation about that. Mm -hmm. Well, no, we never do that. Well, Mark, you've usually read like a hundred things
0: that we haven't read. You never bring up G.E. Moore in a podcast about Buddhism.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's just the rule now. From now on, that's just the rule. (laughs) I had to get that Abhidhamma crap off my chest because I I had... (laughs) We scheduled the talk with Flanagan for January and then he canceled and we had to push it off. And so I felt, okay, we're doing it weeks and weeks later. Maybe we should introduce a second thing to read. So I, on my own, sort of previewed and spent a substantial amount of time with this very, I wouldn't say difficult, but just really boring, (laughs) repetitive text. And I just couldn't see the point. And it really made me question, like, so this is supposed to be like the first phenomenology, Buddhist phenomenology. And it's just a lot of lists. And he was saying, oh, well, taxonomies are boring. That's Flanagan's response.
0: I thought he tried to answer your concern a little bit more than that.
3: Yes. Yeah, I like that part of the conversation, actually, because I okay. thought he addressed the boring part by acknowledging it and then going on to explain how he got something out of it.
1: Right. Why their tradition is superior than the Western tradition in terms of descriptions of inner states, that we don't put a lot of effort into that endeavor. I guess I can see that. Do notable exceptions jump to mind? I think you'd have to look in literature in the West to find that. Well,
3: especially the ancient West,
1: I guess. Right.
3: If you put it that way, descriptions of inner states and stuff like that, I'm back thinking about Achilles again. So the way that whole book is that way.
1: Homer's Phenomenological.
3: Well, Sp- you know,
2: Spinoza has his long list of. It's not exactly phenomenological, but he's building up different mental states out of each other, right?
3: That's right. Hume does it too, right? In Treatise on Human Nature. He's got these long lists of characteristics.
1: Those, again, are references to past podcast episodes. (laughs) We're not name-dropping. Go check it out.
2: (laughs) We can reference things like that even if it's not a past podcast episode. I don't think that's the problem. Referencing, I don't think is the problem.
1: Well, to a point, we did get a comment, a recent review on iTunes, which was a merely four star one instead of a five star one that said something like, <laughs> It's hard for newbies. Yeah, I saw that. Because we break our own rules. And I can see, like, when you hear a name. So somebody actually asked me via an email, Who is this? I forget how he even spelled it, but he didn't know, he'd never heard of Lacan. That is a name that we have dropped several times. Absolutely unjust Just oh, that's who's that's this week Kimo Sabe? <laughs> <laughs> Wes has dropped it. It came up in the in the semiotics one.
2: Yeah, I mean, if we had talked about Saussure without talking about even mentioning Lacan, I think we would have gotten in trouble too. I mean,
1: yeah. So he's a structuralist
2: psychoanalysis theorist. Yeah, you know. Lacan is why Saussure is is even a something that's discussed today. Lacan took that theory and Uh, made it hugely influential on modern philosophers of the continental stripe.
0: Well, there's a difference between who is this Lacan and who is this Aristotle. Do You think, like, there's some tiers. Nobody's ever written and said, hey, who is this Kant? And spelled it like K-H-A-N-T.
1: Well, they might have said, hey, who is this (laughs) Kant? They
0: might have said that. I set you up. Thank <laughs> God! Did I put that one on the tee
2: for you, baby? This reminds me of a story. I was once out with a friend, and he brought a date with him. We were in a bar, and we were talking about Lacan, and I was trying to bring her into the conversation. I said, "Do you know who Lacan is?" And she got extremely offended by the idea that who wouldn't know who Lacan is. And I said, "I didn't know who it was." Before Come on, this- yeah. th- th- like ask. I said, I don't know you from Adam. I literally said this. I said, I don't know you from Adam. <laughs> I don't know whether you know who Lacan is. I'm just, I was actually trying to bring you into the conversation. That girl was so furious with me. Never forgave me.
3: I have that same kind of thing happen to me when somebody finds out, you know, I let a word like cork or lepton slip out of my mouth and someone asks me what it is and I don't know anything about what they know or don't know. So I have to figure out where to start. okay so you understand that stuff is made out of atoms and i look at them just to see if they if that registers and then they you know go on you know (laughs) atoms are made out of electrons and in some ways it sounds a little funny but the fact is is that a lot of people the only time they ever learn that stuff is in high school and they forget about it
2: they don't even pay attention to it i went on a date once with a girl who thought the uh sun revolved around the earth come on seriously
1: And where did you find this prize?
2: are you are you
0: six hundred years old?
2: She was English. She <laughs> <Choose> was <laughs> English too. I don't know what happened.
0: Well, I had the same experience, but not with name dropping, sometimes with vocabulary. I have to self censor yeah. at work because I'll use the word lugubrious. I'll talk to this. <laughs> I'll talk to this, yeah. Autochthonous.
2: Autoxhinous. Seven dollars
1: a ten thousand dollar word. <laughs>
2: All the SAT words that we... It is my
0: favorite word.
1: I did not know that word recently until we talked about that. I knew it from SAT books.
0: You just have to kind of moderate your conversation around, and you can't assume... And when you work in the corporate world, you have to go with the lowest common denominator anyway, but...
2: And how do you find an opportunity to use a to this in a in a business meeting?
0: You don't. I was just being <laughs> facetious, but... <laughs> It's like that
1: idea you just came up for the new packaging of the product was totally thing. <laughs> I have a new word that I just put together much like a German word as a disparaging thing we can say about Wes. You non-Lacano knower-assumer. Non-Lacano what? Non-Lacano knower-assumer. You assume that oh, okay. people don't know about Lacan. Good. Good, a new word.
0: Hey, Wes, do you take any of the stuff that Mark directs at you personally? No. Okay, good. I learned that a long time ago.
1: <laughs> Should I aim more elsewhere? I didn't <laughs> realize I was so cruel.
0: No, No, no I'm fomenting dissent. I'm inserting a Foucauldian, oh, name drop, power structure into our dynamic. Mm.
1: I have uh, the final edit, so I have the ultimate power. I can make you say this. This is the end
0: of Anything.
1: <laughs> Maybe I could put a dog barking for your voice for the whole time. I thought I, I should edit in an extra person. Like, if we have an obnoxious hanger on, just like, yeah, yeah, that's really smart. And just put that sort of randomly in the conversation. That sounds like a terrible idea. It does. Yeah. It
3: does indeed. Don't, don't do that.
1: I think it would depend on the execution.
3: I mean, think about reading a book and then having sort of randomly along in the book. Distracting, ironical, non-references in the margins.
0: Dude, I check books out from the Austin Public Library. I know exactly what that's like. Okay. <laughs> if we were able to do a video, if we somehow had like Japanese anime characters that would pop in randomly at times and be like, oh, you know, with big with big eyes, you know, that kind of thing. That might be that kind would not of not be at
1: all offensive.
2: <laughs> So is everyone drunk tonight
1: or something? (laughs) (laughs) We're just breathing a sigh of relief that we don't have a professional. We have to impress. Yeah.
0: Right. There's clearly nothing professional about what we're doing tonight.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Isn't the Talmud kind of like that they have that kind of stuff in the margins?
0: Yeah, it's a little bit like that. There's a tiny little tiny bit of the text in the center of the page and then the commentaries that have built up over the years all around it.
3: How do you get included to be able to write in that book?
0: There were rabbinical councils, if you will, back when the temple was still in place.
3: So it's not like every year they vote on some guy who Mm -hmm. gets to write. When's the last time a comment got written?
0: Ooh, a long time ago, I think. Oh, I was uh, imagining
3: do... it was like still going on and that they transferred it over into some... to wiki.
1: If they threw it open on the internet to add commentary on commentary, just like our site, then people could post stuff like the person who just tried to post on our site. Affirmative action is genocide against whites. <laughs> That's just so good. Yeah, just for the yes. record, it's, people. It's
3: bizarre that they found it. What do we get, a couple thousand hits a day? I mean, they must be searching for it.
1: I think that was one of our fans. I think that was somebody that listened to the whole podcast and said, the thing that I take away from this is that
0: affirmative
1: (laughs) action is genocide. (laughs) It's not the case.
0: (laughs) That comment was from Anonymous, and the email address was like ABCDE at gmail.com and it was routed through like a new zealand ip address <laughs> i was like really if you're gonna be a racist own it man you can do it with le- yeah own it and do it and don't do so much work
1: say it loud <laughs> and say it proud <laughs> Why that brings us to our third ground rule. We will be rigorous and exact in all that we say, unless doing otherwise would be more entertaining. Just say
3: it loud and say it proud rule.
0: That's why we can be 30 minutes into a podcast and not have even touched on a subject.
1: I was just, I was just picturing the people who wanted to hear about Buddhism oh, in the first episode and were like, Oh, when are they going to talk about Buddhism? So, oh, oh, they had a second episode so they can talk about Buddhism. Oh, ah, ah. <laughs> Maybe I'll just add in the Buddhist character. have inserted Buddhist koans as commentary to all that's been said so far in the episode. And still have this voice. <laughs> what, what voice? You can you? never walk through the same river twice.
0: <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you?
1: <laughs> we don't do enough voices on the show, I realize. I, I keep meaning to do them for the intro, but then I just, it comes at me too fast.
0: Mm, I did listen to some of these comedy podcasts like doug benson's doug loves movies have you guys ever listened to that Nope. it's highly entertaining and he had a guy on who does jesse the body ventura as the conspiracy theorist governor that's a good voice now if i could do that that would be worth doing do any of you guys even know who jesse the body ventura oh, i is? know
3: exactly of who course, jesse does. the body ventura is
0: <laughs> that's right he was governor of your state no the home no, state no, right the the next,
1: next door state
0: oh minnesota okay Yep. not michigan and they all start with them
1: Speaking of podcasts, because uh, we essentially scheduled this interview with Owen twice, so I spent two different couple-week periods listening to a bunch of Buddhist podcasts to get myself in the mood to see what the realm of stuff out there was, and so we didn't sound completely clueless or out of touch with what people were talking about in Buddhism. For instance, Buddhist Geeks has been recommended to us a few times. Anybody listen to that? It's a pretty good one. I mean, it sounds like it should be plural, Geeks. But it seems like it was plural, and now it's mostly a couple hundred episodes in. One guy interviewing different people every week, and he's a good interviewer. It's pretty organized. They have an actual like conference that they advertise. Very regularly show up in person and get all these academics involved. And it's really like a very wide swath of what people are doing in Buddhism. But it also seems a little bit, it's kind of get the guest on and let him say what he wants to say. Not quite a conversation in the way, say, conversations from the pale blue dot is a conversation where the host has read all the books of the guests and is engaging them on detailed points. It's a pretty wide range of stuff. They had Stephen Batchelor, is a Buddhist skeptic, more along the lines of where Owen's coming from, who's been on that podcast, as well as the Secular Buddhist podcast that Owen was on. And then later, the Buddhist Geeks podcast had another guy that was all about Buddhist magic. There are a few different episodes about this, but there's a whole strain in Buddhism that thinks, if you don't believe in ESP, you haven't been paying attention to the research. And so it was a little uncritical, can I say? I I don't know. It seemed like it deserved a little... Stronger response. So in this particular one, he did bring up, well, I had Stephen Batchelor and he said this was all full of crap. That was the token point of objection. It was more, hear him out. One of the things I found interesting in this whole topic, just like with the Persig is that so much of the work people are doing is not connected to an institution, right? There are people that do go to Buddhist temples, but there are many people in America just also pursuing it on their own, much like you might pursue philosophy on your own. And it just becomes a question like, well, what, in fact, you might if you found that, you know, I'm not going to believe your claims unless they are validated by some authority, that's seen as a sign of weakness. No, you should be able to go in and uh, see for yourself. And I don't know. That just means that anytime anybody makes any kind of claim, however ludicrous, that you have a responsibility to go out and independently research it. You can't take anybody's word for it. We had a similar back and forth on the blog about biblical scholarship in the wake of our God episodes of uh People who think that the resurrection historically happened versus those who think that's just obviously a bunch of nonsense. Like, well, how many sources do I have to read? And is there anybody actually writing objectively about this before I can have an educated opinion?
3: The problem is this is the way conspiracy theories and people who are always complaining about how no one ever pays attention. To me, the big flag is when most of the time is spent talking about how everybody's ignoring me or ignoring this person or this idea that I love rather than talking about what is actually being said. It's all constantly persuasive speech, and it all is linchpin kind of speech. If you just knew and understood X, you would understand everything. If you just knew and had read Process and Reality, then you would know everything. If you would, <laughs> I just, if you would just read Ayn Rand, <laughs> Fountainhead, everything would be clear to you. You can pick your favorite crazy person and put it in there.
1: Yeah. So one of the Buddhist Geeks episode was the guy that was like, it's not confirmed with scientific precision, but there's strong evidence that there is reincarnation. There's all these cases that have been reported by this University of Virginia researcher about little children who suddenly have all these memories of specific people in different times and places. And then you look them up and those people actually were there. And can't i just discount this without actually finding out what the fuck research he's talking about and looking it up and i'm sure there is a guy that did this research and then but is there anybody that seriously engages him and refutes him or does everybody just say no that's obvious bullshit it just becomes very tiring i want authorities to tell me what to believe
2: yeah and if you're operating on a naturalistic from that framework which most of us are then it takes an extraordinary kind of evidence for us to admit that something supernatural has occurred, right? you want to say that something that transcends nature has occurred, then I'd better see it with my own eyes, and I'd better not be drunk or on drugs, and so on and so forth. But when would that be? Some guy writing uh, something on the internet, it's a whole different thing. Or even if he's published articles, I don't know in what journals, but right, our burden of evidence, our burden of proof is going to be high.
1: And that's, I think, why Flanagan, when he's arguing for naturalism, Again, maybe it's just in this book, like he said, because he's already argued in past books. But he just pretty much says, we're just in the naturalist camp. Yeah. And he, yeah. This is just the set of assumptions we start with. I'm not going to bother to argue with you people that really take rebirth seriously.
2: Did he imply that he argues for naturalism in some other book? I don't remember. He might actually argue for naturalism somewhere else. But in this, yeah, he just says, yes, we're going to take this for granted. And by that, he means, right, he's not admitting anything supernatural. He's not admitting miracles or anything like that, which is a little bit different than what we usually mean when we talk about moral naturalism versus moral non-naturalism, right? Because Mark, you brought up G. Moore and G. Moore, that's an extension of Hume's. Odd is... Distinction. Flanagan doesn't really address that. He doesn't really address whether he thinks that an ought can be derived from an is. That's one project for naturalizing morality, is to say we can get from some set of facts which don't assume any normative claim to a normative claim. That's an ongoing dispute, but Flanagan isn't really touching on that here.
0: That's right, Wes. That's not the way he approached it. When I asked, why do you need to have some kind of system, like what's the motivation for the book to begin with? And he said, well, He felt that scientific naturalism should have a metaphysics, an epistemology, and an ethics, which was a very interesting thing to say, I thought, suggesting that A, scientific naturalism is a kind of systematic theory, like the theories that it put forth in other philosophers, and so it needs to have the three key philosophical elements in it. But I also think there's a kind of, in two stages, one being political And one being, I'll call it nostalgic, that people who buy into scientific naturalism, who are not scientists, who aren't really thinking about the bigger questions but are just doing science, they want to have the same kind of grounding or some kind of solid foundation for ethics and for metaphysics that they get out of scientific inquiry. That, I think, is somehow left over. It's part of this nostalgia for a way of thinking that I think in philosophy has, I don't know if it's gone out of style, but it certainly was broken down in the 20th century. And the second part of it is the scientific naturalists, for the most part, are setting themselves up in the atheist camp against, I guess I'll call them religionists or theists or what have you. And so this, even though it's not obvious, is part of that whole dialogue with the new atheists that we had the podcast on a little while ago. And Flanagan is, in his own way, trying to support the claims of the atheists who are aligned with the scientific naturalism against the religious camp who's saying that science provides no basis for morality. Because you remember the term he used, that if you aren't aligned with a religion, you have to come up with some way to convince people of your moral seriousness. When people say, I'm spiritual but not religious... It's a marker that says, "Oh well, I'm very serious about ethics and morality. I'm not a complete relativist or hedonist or anything like that. So I think there's some weird dynamics at play in the motivations for this book.
3: I think you're right, Seth, to point out that a lot of the underlying argument is do with relativism and saying that, well, there must be some kind of standards and those standards. We must be able to appeal to them in some way other than it being completely up to us, individually, utterly relativistic. And I think you're right that there is a strand of people who see science as providing that. And I think that there's a history in science as thinking that it does. But I think even in the recent understanding of science, the way in which science would provide that kind of foundation, if you look at it at all, is so loose as to not be the kind of prescriptive rulemaking that people want to have, especially in morality or in ethics almost anything, or if I say anything in science, you could just revise it away into something different. And it's not that it would disappear. It's just the way in which it's a foundational item has to do with the way it's integrated with itself. And things come and go all the time in science. And the things that have stuck around, even in modern science, are pretty loose in some way. I mean, they're very abstract epistemological things. And if you say, well, you know, energy is conserved, That's a way of just embracing the whole so that you can say, well, there's one thing I'm talking about, and that's the universe. And the only way I can measure it is by saying that there's something I can measure it with respect to. And the moment that you find out that energy, well, that might not be conserved, you end up saying, well, actually, it is because I'm going to have to come up with a new kind of energy. And that's because you were using energy as a way of describing a whole. You're trying to find something to measure with respect to. Even if it turned out that that thing that you called energy before, MV squared, ended up not being it, you would find something else that would do that for you. And I think that people have extrapolated that often into something that is intrinsic in some ways that gives us a hold on the world that is not combined with our own interaction with it. So for
2: Flanagan, right, he's a naturalist in the broad sense, which is to say he thinks that the natural sciences are a paradigm for truth-seeking, and he thinks that supernatural explanations should be rejected. But that's not to say that he's on the Sam Harris route, where he thinks that empirical science is the methodology for answering all questions, say ethical questions. Now, I think he thinks it should be pushed to the limit in assisting ethical inquiry from his book and what he said about scientism in the last podcast, I think he's aware of the possibility that the domain of sciences is limited to some extent. So when he uses naturalism in this book, I think he's using it in a very broad sense. I think most of us would admit to being that kind of naturalist. The stronger type of naturalism is more up for debate. The deriving odds from his or the Sam Harris sort of thing.
3: And I think that the way Flanagan wants to use supernatural probably doesn't disagree with the way most people who would adhere to supernatural explanations would understand supernatural
2: no yeah i agree
3: meaning that somebody who argues for esp or karma strongly understood or reincarnation strongly understood they would understand that as supernatural that's the way they would understand it themselves i think they would at least
2: yeah which is to say there aren't natural laws that allow us to explain these phenomena these
3: phenomena break the rules right the ordinary rules Yeah, which already is a funny separate thing, right? That you would have rules for the universe that break the rules for the universe that aren't part of the bigger set of rules. It's the reason why magic is already always science. You know, you can go to school at Hogwarts and you can learn how to do magic. So it's a science. It's not... Magic in the sense. Of, <laughs> I mean, it is.
2: That's interesting because my problem with Harry Potter is that it's hard to have something be at stake when you don't really know what the rules are. You never really quite know what the rules are with the magic that's involved. You know, he's going to wave his wand and say some spell, but you have no way of predicting the battle based on who's got the stronger spell. You're really just not aware enough of the rules for enough to be at stake for me. So, well,
1: if you would keep up with the uh, rules of wand ownership, then, but you- then
2: <laughs> you're right. <laughs> But then something like, you know, other movies play with the concept of magic as well. Like, say, a movie like Mission Impossible or any hero movie where these guys are doing things which are almost impossible. I mean, these athletic feats jumping out of windows or fighting with some guy on a moving airplane or something ridiculous like that, James Bond or Mission Impossible. So we get the thrill of it's almost supernatural and yet they're always playing within the rules, right? There's always some plausible explanation. Okay, yes, that is possible that he could do that. And that always keeps the stakes very high in those movies. I think the stakes fall apart when things become so supernatural that you're no longer cognizant of the the rules. So I think that's a good way of putting it out, the difference between the natural and the supernatural.
1: Well, see, that's funny because it seems like Dylan was saying that in the Harry Potter movies, the magic is sort of too explained, right? Where you're saying it's not explained enough so that you understand it. Or is it just think it doesn't make sense? Like in Tolkien, for instance, it's not explained very much at all. It's just Gandalf is some sort of really a lesser god. If you read the background texts into what kind of creature he is, but even just reading the book, like there's no explanation of where this came from. Right. You know, maybe it's just that it's sprinkled so sparsely through the stories that it's not.
2: My point is, in a typical struggle between a protagonist and an antagonist, say it's some sort of physical struggle, you would expect that someone's going to get exhausted over the course of the fight, or you expect that a punch of a certain strength will inflict such and such kind of damage. There are all sorts of background rules like that where you... You're in suspense about the outcome. I mean, obviously, you know what the outcome is going to be because a good guy's going to win. And yet there's some sort of suspense about that. And often the suspense is, well, how is the good guy going to get out of this horrible predicament he's in where he's hanging off the edge of the cliff? But Of course, he manages to pull the villain over the cliff and climb back up. So he's doing things which are almost impossible. So they're playing with the idea of the supernatural or the impossible, but they're just getting it in under the radar, let's say. That's where I think suspense can be created. With Harry Potter, I agree that the magic is over-explained in a way, and they try and make it mundane, you know, it's like a regular English boarding school, and so on and so forth, but the fact that there's no way to follow a struggle between two magicians with wands, it's not even a narrative, there's not even a storyline to it, except that the energy is going from each wand, and they're struggling with each other, and boom, oh, suddenly one magician overcomes the other for some unknown reason. I don't know if I've explained that very well.
3: I think you do. I think you articulated nicely. You didn't see Rowling accomplishing that establishing of rules for magic. And I think that regardless of whether she's successful or not, she tries to do the same thing as someone like Tolkien or anybody else who deals with science fiction or supernatural events or whatever, is establish a consistency of universe so that even if you couldn't explain it, you know, you can't build the warp drive in Star Trek, but there are rules for it. There are things right. that can, you need dilithium exactly. lithium crystals, right? And right. there are, there's exactly. conflicts, there's lack of resources, there is limits that you run up against, all those things, and they are cause and effect, mm-hmm. right? That's what I meant by saying that magic, in the case of Harry Potter, any of these other things, anything that you can learn ends up being a science, It would be interesting maybe to talk to somebody who really argues hardcore for supernatural explanation, yet says that you can learn something about it and also claims that it's not a science in the sense of knowledge. I myself think that what they'll end up saying is that they want to reject a certain kind of science, but claim that learnable science for themselves. I think the only real argument against it, the only claim you could have would be, something like what Lucas does with the Jedi Knights and the uh, the Mito what are they called the
1: the Medicorians
3: where you have some kind of alternative access through yourself which works the way like something like blessedness by god authority works in that case that mm-hmm. is not learnable it's not knowledge in the sense of a science
2: yeah, it's not replicable yeah. and you can't get to it through an experiment. So I mean ironically it's empirical to some extent, right? If someone says yes. Well, I see ghosts yeah. and then you know, you could find a whole community of people who say, Yes, we've all seen ghosts. Yes. But it's not likely that they're ever going to be able to show each other their ghosts, right? It was this That's very right. idiosyncratic, particular, walled off experience. So they accept certain, yeah, quasi scientific rules like the empirical thing. There's got to be something that counts as evidence, but it falls apart when you try and get the level of generalizability or rulemaking.
3: And well, importantly, the-, the authority for whether or not it was observed is wholly up to them and utterly individual, yeah, right? Exactly. But it's granted as being true. And, I, and there's something sort of powerful about that, that the right sort mm-hmm. of person giving the testimony, people will believe it, right? Right. I think in some ways kings and leaders and stuff work this way too, that you have other reasons for placing authority in what they say, and you find yourself not judging the events right. yourself. You judge it based upon the authority of that experience or what you vest in that person. And that's a whole different kind of way of knowing something. It's a kind of granting of it. That's not scientific, but that's not the way magic, certainly in Harry Potter, and I don't even
1: think that's the way magic works in Tolkien either. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a Partially Examined Life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com support.